Listeners, start your engines. Episode 26, Rob here. On this episode, we're moving right along with our most sensational, celebrational, inspirational, and some might even say Muppetational mega series. That's right, we're moving on to 1981's The Great Muppet Caper, and we're joined by Ryan Luis Rodriguez of The Coolness Chronicles to talk about Jim Henson's directorial debut. As always, you can find more episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. But let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about The Great Muppet Caper. This is the most fabulous diamond of them all, the legendary baseball diamond. And this would be the most sensational heist of the century if it weren't for... The Great Muppet Caper. It's a new Muppet movie. With what? You're a superstar. Say cheese. A glamorous nightclub, and the fun begins. Mickey, that's my new receptionist dancing out there. She's sensational. 45 words a minute, about average. A hired car. I can only take you as far as the lobby. And the danger begins. A backstage romance. And the jealousy begins. Don't put a door between us. Uh Oh, come on! Oh, excuse me! A brilliant strategy. We're gonna have to catch those thieves red-handed. What color are their hands now? (laughs) And the adventure begins. In the Great Muppet Caper. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're continuing our trek through the Muppet movies, the theatrical Muppet movies, the eight theatrically released Muppet movies, actually. And we're entering into the second film released from, from the Muppets canon, directed by Jim Henson, which we'll get into. And that is, of course... The Great Muppet Caper. So joining me on this episode is Ryan Luis Rodriguez of the Coolness Chronicles. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is an honor to get to talk about Muppets. Yeah, exactly. Any any day you can talk about Muppets is a good day. Yes, that's how I see exactly. It. <laughs> yes, that, that's how I look at days. I go, did I talk about Muppets today? Yes, I did. Okay, then it was fine. <laughs> yeah, it's a flow chart. Did you talk about Muppets? Yes, good day. No, work on that for yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> Let's make tomorrow There's always yeah. room for improvement. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so tell people who, who aren't listening to the millions of things you have going on or what you know, whatever you have going on these days on social media and stuff. Tell them about the Coolness Chronicles and your plans for the future. Sure. So the Coolness Chronicles is a subjective pop culture history podcast. Upon wrapping up a hundred episodes on the greatest thing ever, Mystery Science Theater 3000, we are now deep into the second season all about the landmark parody film Airplane, the movies and filmmakers that inspired it, and the movies and filmmakers it inspired, from Mel Brooks to the Marx Brothers, Hot Shots to Scary Movie, The Naked Gun to Ghost. It is a weird semi-serialized, fairly unique experience that is frankly exhausting to produce. And accordingly, depending on when this episode debuts, the final new episodes will drop. And then I'm continuing on on the same feed to a spinoff called One Track Mind, where I analyze films through their audio commentaries. And I also host another podcast called Reels of Justice, which is a fake movie court where we have a prosecutor, defense, judge, and jury and try to determine if a film is guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. And we just hit our 100-episode milestone. You can find both of those wherever you listen to podcasts. Very cool. Yeah, I I love the idea of, of having Airplane as sort of... as we My other show, Close Watch, we just recently posted our an episode on Airplane. But I love the idea of, of treating it as sort of the fulcrum of that 
particular subgenre of comedy because it really it really is kind of the apex and it's all been you know variable success <laughs> since yeah. and before then I'd, I'd say it's the parody north star absolutely yeah everything that comes before it is in a continuum and everything that comes after it is influenced by it 100% 100% so i imagine is that going to is that going to go through like the date movie epic movie are you getting just cover those last month i did all of the friedberg and seltzer movies as one episode Uh and doing the research for that was the most soul-crushing experience (laughs) i've ever had in my entire life beyond podcasting yeah i mean i've had some tough days in my life but sitting down over the course of two days and watching every friedberg and seltzer movie practically broke me God, the 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 nadir. If 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 airplane is the apex, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. Yes, it's the the yin and the yang. Yeah, one has totally. to be the white, one has to be the black, and I don't know which one is supposed to be the good one. But whatever it is, it's not the Friedberg and Seltzer movie. No, no, not at all, not at all. Yeah, that's cool. I, I love it, and I I I love the idea of of doing a podcast about audio commentaries because I'm a big physical media guy. I still have lots of, you know, I, I still buy and, and own and continually, especially in COVID times, buy a lot of retail therapy, a lot of Blu-rays and stuff coming in the mail. I, I really love that, that that effort to really kind of bolster the audio commentary art, art form because I feel like it's, I, I have, I, do you get a sense that other than the big, you know, Criterion and, you know, maybe Scream Factory or other other brands like that, do you feel like the audio commentary as an art form is really fading a lot? Because I feel like studio mass-produced Blu-rays like rarely ever have anything like that now. Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing is that audio commentaries are basically the first form of podcasting. Like they're yeah. it's it's the embryonic stage of that. And so I think podcasting itself has completely supplanted it. Like you can listen to a show and get a director's entire filmography analyzed. And it's like, well, why do I need to listen to him talk about it? So why do we even produce them? But I think that like Kino Lorber and Criterion are are keeping up the good fight and still giving it wherever they can. And thankfully, a lot of the people that they cover are still alive so they can actually give their direct perspective. But it's in terms of the mass produced Blu-rays and DVDs, it does seem to be a dying art form. And that's a that's a tragedy. Because yeah. that's what made me fall in love with movies after being like a movie brat as a kid. When I really started falling in love with cinema as opposed to just movies, as, as opposed to just content, it was through DVDs and the audio commentaries. They made me want to make movies myself. And while I haven't succeeded at that, I think the passion that I have for them now all stems back from that. I I wonder, I haven't scientifically tested this yet but now i'm feeling like i should start asking around i wonder how many movie podcasters were all like oh i was so into audio commentary back in the day when i didn't have you know when i maybe had more time to to do so you know now with full-time jobs and marriages and children and it's like it's harder for some of us to to devote as much time to that but earlier on in various stage of our life i i had imagined that most podcasters to do exactly what we do talking about movies or pop culture i imagine all of us at one point or another were really into commentary tracks yeah if you love context you are probably a commentary head yeah absolutely so kind of shifting from there you know we're here today to talk about speaking of things like airplane and things that are creatively energizing and getting a, a glimpse behind a filmography we're we're talking about jim henson's 1981 theatrical directorial debut. The only Muppet movie he he directed, as as you, you know, we briefly mentioned before uh, off mic. What was your introduction to the Muppets? Like, what was your what was your entry point into this world? And then we'll shift into the Great Muppet Caper itself. So for me, I was raised on the Muppet Show, Muppet Babies, and Sesame Street. Sesame Street was my jam for like the first five or six years of my life. Like the the Muppet show could be a little subversive and my parents were, or at least my mom, always did not like subversiveness. So it was more of a challenge to get around to that. But Sesame Street 
like Big Bird, Cookie Monster, Grover are essential pillars of my childhood and therefore essential pillars in my life. I still yeah. carry around all those obsessions. I can still practically name every single Muppet the second they should go on screen, whether they've been in movies or television shows. It doesn't matter. Like, it, it, it's, all, it's all part of one big pool party for me. And I think the one that really solidified my further appreciation of the Muppets was Muppet Vision 3D, which is at Disney's Hollywood Studios, used to be Disney MGM Studios, possibly my favorite theme park attraction of all time. And that was one of the few times where my parents were okay with the Muppets as this grand thing. And it was something that we could enjoy as a family. Mm-hmm. And that has stuck with me all these years. Yeah, I'm in, I'm actually in Florida. So I've been on that attraction a lot over the years. And no, that's it's the it, best. It's oh, also best. It, is it also, according to Wikipedia, it is. Is it also directed by Jim Henson or at least? Yes, it is. It's the last thing he directed before he passed away. And what a way to end your legacy. That's all my God. I mean, the jokes start when you're in the line and they continue to the pre-show. And then when the show's over, there's still more jokes. Like it's, you could tour the building for five hours and still not scratch the surface of everything that is hiding in there. I can only imagine what it was like for him at that stage too, to be creating a theme park attraction for these characters that, you know, he started with decades earlier with yeah. Kermit the Frog, at least, you know, like on Sam and Friends in the 50s. And then later on watching the Muppet phenomenon explode to the point where it's at, you know, a Disney, you know, Disney World park. I have to imagine that the fact that he got an entire courtyard like the huge store that that used to be across the street. It's not there anymore because of Star Wars land, which is a Mm. tragedy. It's not even Muppet Courtyard anymore. But I have to imagine that he felt a real validation of his vision walking around there in what were probably the last months of his life. I have to imagine that he took that as kind of the honor that it was. Yeah, absolutely. And what I've heard is that apparently... They had plans for a whole Muppet section of the park. Yeah, the the original Tower of Terror was going to be a Muppet like they tackle all the horror movies. Yeah. Like they were going to have Frankenstein and Dracula and all that stuff, but with Muppets. And then they went the Twilight Zone route. But yeah, they were originally going to have a much larger footprint in that park. And that just didn't happen when Disney ended up not buying the Muppets until like 20 years later. Right, exactly. And now we're sort of at a... I don't know, an extended crossroads for this franchise, I guess. Yeah, it's the low ebb at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Muppets Haunted Mansion felt like a, a step closer than some of the other stuff that they had done. Yes. So yeah, I we, we'll, we'll see what the future holds. But in this case, we're talking The Great Muppet Caper. So when did you first see this film? Is this, is this another one that was a, like kind of a pillar of your childhood? No, surprisingly enough, this one I reached later, like maybe when I was nine or 10, when I started collecting. This is one of the first VHSs that I did collect. And when I saw it, even at the age of nine or 10, I thought, where has this been all my life? Like, mm-hmm. this is the kind of Muppet movie that I, I am 100% on board for. And I didn't even dislike any Muppet movies before that. It was just, I dialed into it, in it into its particular wavelength, and it's stuck with me ever since. One of the things that I find really interesting about this franchise is that it's, it's, a, it's a film franchise that has no apparent continuity, really. And I, right. I always find those fascinating. I just recently did an episode of this podcast on Pee Wee Herman, who again, has three movies and plays the same character in all of them, but vastly different circumstances. Yeah. And so this is kind of a similar vibe. The only only potential connection I came up with is that perhaps this is the first movie that they're making on their rich and famous contract that they get at the end of the Muppet movie. I'm think. glad you brought that up because that is in my notes right here. That exists is the first official Muppet movie. The Muppet movie is the is the origin story to get up to the rich and famous contract that leads to the Muppet show. And then this is their chance at the, at the bite at the apple. This is their very first real movie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, cause we, you can kind of bifurcate these, these Muppet movies, especially the theatrical ones as there's Kermit and, and everyone just kind of existing in the world. 
which I yeah. guess is the original movie, Muppets from Space, and then Muppet, the you know, the the more recent 2010s movies where they're just celebrities that exist in our world. And then there's the more the adaptations where it's, you know, Christmas Carol, Treasure Island, etc. And then here, this one in Muppets Take Manhattan, they're kind of they are Kermit, but they're still playing characters. They just have the same, you know, the same name. So it kind of splits right. the difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah I love yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so I love that as sort of the the transition. The first one ends, they're making a movie, and the second one starts, hey, a movie, you know, and they're like, we're in a movie, guys, check it out, we made it. And I, I love yeah. that that's kind of how it, how it kicks off. Yeah, it's, it's very sweet in that way. Like, I think that the only Muppet movie with a direct sequel is the 2010 Muppets. Mm-hmm. Because Muppets yeah. Most Wanted is a continuation of that story. Like, they literally begin with the last shot of the Muppets. Right. Yeah, but, absolutely. But Great Muppet Caper is tonally similar, but with entirely its own beast. It's also just, to, we should probably just get this out of the way now. I, I, I think enjoy Muppets Most Wanted more than most people who like hate it, essentially. It's bottom of the I love Muppets it. for them. I think Yeah, okay. Good. Okay, because a lot of people I've talked to, they're like, oh, you know, when we're, we'll do the ranking, of your ranking at the end of this episode, they're like, bottom, Muppets Most Wanted. I was like, really? Bottom? Oh, like, okay, I don't know about that. Game. But there's so much, my, my, maybe my issue with Muppets Most Wanted, you know, kind of the fundamental issue that I might have with that film is that there's so much that it takes pretty much directly from this movie or... yeah. Muppets Take Manhattan. It's like a it's like a remixed version of those two. Definitely and Muppets Take Manhattan with the whole marriage angle. Like the whole marriage angle part of it. together again, again. Yeah. I'm like, really? Come on. But there's a lot of songs in that movie that I like. I think, you know, it, there's the whole caper thing that they took directly from this. Constantine's song is the best. Yeah. Con- no. Just oh, the best. Uh, I'm so number good. one. Or the... Uh, I'll give it to you. you. Yeah, I'll give you, yeah. yeah, I'll get you what you want. Oh, great. Yeah, I like the I like the character of Constantine, but that's that's a totally separate thing we'll get to later on this mega series. But yes, no, I there's a lot. I'm glad that we're both Muppets most wanted defenders because I feel like there needs to be some of us out there. But yeah, that the MMW said, Pride collection. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But yes, it's it, it, it is a lot in this movie that is kind of repurposed later for that film. But I I, I do I do like the idea of plugging the Muppets into an actual movie. Like, you know, there, there is, there's a real, I think the, the problem that I have here is that the plot of this movie, like, here's my thing. The plot of this movie is sort of not inconsequential in a lot of ways because it's a Muppet movie. And so I feel like the plot heavier parts of this movie, all the stuff with the, the actual caper are slight, are, are, are just, pale in comparison to all the fourth wall breaking moments in this movie. The best moments of this movie are where they acknowledge that they're in a movie. And I guess you could say that for a lot of the Muppet stuff, but it's, it's what sticks out to me is the, Hey, a movie it's the, you know, piggy and Kermit bickering mid scene breaking character. You're being Um, very ham. You're hamming it up. Yeah. 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 I'm trying to save this movie. I'm playing 800 emotions or whatever. Like only you pick one and play it right. Yeah, that that kind of stuff. I love all of that. Is there is is there a particular distinction between this movie and the first one? Like which of these do you feel like is pure is the purest Muppet experience? Because I'm kind of torn on that. Because you can only do an adaptation of the Muppet show. You can only do the origin story the one time, obviously. Right. So they did that. But this one Actually, it feels like it might be closer to what Jim Henson. I, you know, I, it's harder to to ascertain what Jim Henson's kind of vision for the Muppets on the big screen is. Is it the first one where it's clearly sort of an allegory for his own rise to fame, and where there's so much heart put into it, and it feels like there's a real message to, by the end of the movie, or is it this one where he literally is directing it, and it's sort of the Muppets plugged into? You know, I have to imagine if he had, you know, if he had lived a lot longer, we would have gotten the Muppets plugged into different film genres more, you know, yeah. more directly. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a mixture of both. I think that they both have weight because clearly, like you said, the the first one is an allegory, which I think that was that was especially important to Jim, who kind of Jim, I say that like we're on a first name basis, 
to Mr. Hansen because he was, if anything, a self-referential artist. He liked intersecting the the real, the personal, and the fantastical. And I think that's what he did best. But also at the same time, I think that while Muppet movie is the better movie unquestionably, Muppet Caper has a plays with some interesting ideas that I think are completely sidestepped by the Muppet movie. And I think that's why it's my favorite Muppet movie. What are, what are some of those ideas? Like, what is it about this movie that makes it stand out as your favorite? It's the, the constant meta commentary, like Diana Rigg explaining the plot <laughs> and then yeah. explaining that she's doing it because she's providing plot exposition. Right. Like, or it opening up with the, the MGM lion, but instead of the lion, it's, it's animal. And then he eats the set surrounding him. Like, it's stuff like that that you need to prime the, the ground for that with the Muppet movie. And then it's kind of like the, the Star Trek, the motion picture, and the Wrath of Khan. So you set everything up, you remind people who these characters are, then you put them on an adventure, and then the second one, you get to have all the fun. It's like the first one is is you're the parent and you have to change the baby and you have to feed the baby. And then the second one, you get to be the uncle and you just get to play with the baby. You don't, mm -hmm. have, you don't have to do all the hard work. Right, right. Yeah, we know we, we, we've seen them in the real world before. We, we, you know, we have the kind of the core, the core Muppet cast, at least theatric. Like that's the thing too. On the show, it's much more of an ensemble. On the, on the movies, it's... Pretty much almost universally, Kermit, Fozzie, Piggy, Gonzo, and then everyone else is sort of below those four. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, this really solidifies that right out the gate, too. Yeah, I think that that's another thing that it actually carries over from Star Trek is the the triad of Gonzo, Fozzie, and Piggy are very much like Kirk, Spock, and Bones. And I say that as yeah. not somebody who is particularly well-versed in Star Trek, but I do know that it's that, that core thruple relationship that the second that they meet Gonzo in the Muppet movie, it is one of those kind of transcendent moments where you're like, oh, this, this is what they're going to be dining out on for years. Mm -hmm. And it was. Well, they all bring such distinctive energies. That's the thing that, that makes it so much yes. fun to see those three, those three characters interplay. And then Piggy's, you know, this kind of wild card. She's the wild card, there. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like Gonzo, Fozzie, and Kermit all have very specific well-defined you know perspectives on the yeah. world on the show that they're putting on or whatever you know whatever their goal happens to be in the movie in this one you know kermit's like outlining this is what we're gonna do in the movie we play crackshot reporters for the daily chronicle and and then gonzo's like i just got a picture of a chicken it's you know that's kind of <laughs> they all have kermit. the idiosyncrasies and they stick exactly. to them and Kermit's just like, oh, good. Like, what's he doing with a picture of a chicken? Yeah, he's unflappingly positive, even in the worst situation. Exactly. Which is always amusing. Yeah, that's what we love about Kermit. And then Piggy, you never know if you're going to get, like, you know, more vulnerable Piggy, which she does show on occasion, especially regarding her feelings for Kermit. It, you know, if you're going to get, like, really excited, enthusiastic Piggy, or if you're going to get, like, you know, what I call berserker Piggy, where she's just going to, like... <laughs> Go uh, when and he's I, like I, super pushy and just kind of like just demands yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, Diva Piggy, I guess too. Is different. <laughs> there's like so. There's like several variations, and you never know which way the wind is going to blow when when Piggy's in a scene. Yeah, which I think in this one you get the vulnerable Piggy surprisingly a lot. And what I really like is that Kermit is is clearly attracted to Piggy, which is kind of downplayed in a lot of the movies. Like. Yeah. He, sometimes he sees her and he does the big gulp where he his face kind of caves in a little bit. But in this one, he's like, oh, I'm, a, I'm on board. I'm on board for this relationship. I can't wait to see where it goes. And when she's framed, he's one of the few people that actually believes in her, where in other movies, he might actually turn the other way and go, sorry, uh, I can't help with this. I got other things to do. But in this one, he's clearly attracted to her. And so is Charles Grodin, which I find very amusing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like we get he a, is uh, down for that pig. I gotta say, it, it. I did not pick up on that for some reason in most of my viewings before that, but in watching it for this podcast, I just I took no small amount of pleasure in the looks that Groden gives her. Like I would so take a crack at that. 
Yeah, Thirsty Groden. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. Very much. Oh, yeah. So she, Piggy is a thirst trap for Groden. Yeah, no, that's I lo- yeah, I love that as well. And and regarding the Kermit Piggy thing, like even in the in the Muppet movie, we get he reacts like he is taken by her, but not like it's like 15% Kermit, 85% Piggy in the first one. I feel like here it's yeah, it's much more of an even keel, their their romance. And it's also much more of a focus of of the the film as well. Like it's kind of the driving force throughout a lot of the story. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned romance because that is like that that plays a big role in future movies, namely Muppets Take Manhattan. But it really it solidifies for the first time here. Like yeah. in the Muppet Show, it's clear that Piggy's into Kermit, but Kermit is so monotonous, so mono focused on the show and about making the best show that he can that she kind of goes by the wayside and then she has to be pushy about it. But I think this is the the first movie where they kind of, as you said, they're on an even keel. Right. And I, I like that it retained, this movie retains the uh, the Muppet status as underdogs, literally. Like in the first one, they're just, just this random assortment of, you know, frogs and bears and whatevers and pigs kind of it's making their eyeballs. Yeah, exactly. And then in this one, they're, again, still sort of underdogs. They are they're they're trying to, to solve this case and they're staying in the happiness hotel which is a fun little number in and of itself and they're tossed out of their ninth class on their airplane so they're just tossed out in crates which is a genius genius bit of comedy where and it, i feel like even at the, the end of the movie when they've solved yeah. the case they still thrown out of the plane but at least more time they get yeah. parachutes yeah yeah it's an upgrade that's eight eight and a half class i guess and and i think for the first time it, at least in the movies it i don't know if it does it on the show at any point but they officially sort of label gonzo's crate as a whatever and that's kind of the ongoing term for his his species until you know until 1999 when they have a little more insight of where he came from but but yeah so now i love that that sort of the scrappiness that that is kind of part and parcel of of the muppets appeal too yeah, they are they are really their backs up are, are up against the wall in this one. Like I love how dedicated Kermit and Fozzie are to being reporters, even though they're not good at it. Like they're not particularly adept at what they're doing. And Gonzo is a terrible photographer. Like you mentioned, he takes a picture of a chicken simply because he's attracted to chickens. Yeah. And uh there's that. But I think that they have this positivity and gumption that carries them a lot so that they, a lot of the adversity that they face bounces right off of them because they're too busy focused on making their own lives better and making the lives of those around them better that they really don't see the obstacles that are put up in front of them. And I think that that kind of, that optimism is tempered by a certain pessimism that, that kind of stretches through Henson's work but I think when it's at its best it is optimistic yeah yeah there's a certain there's a certain aspirational quality I think to the Muppets too yeah and that yeah, exactly. they, they band together they kind of unrelenting in their pursuit of their dreams whether that's solving a case or you know going to Hollywood and I and I think there's that's in the best of their productions that's sort of that's always you know kind of a an emotional thrust of whatever story they're telling yeah, it's something that builds from Sesame Street, which says monsters and humans can coexist. It's the ultimate civil rights analogy. Yeah. Like we're all, it doesn't matter if we're monsters or people, we can all get along. We can all live in the same neighborhood. We can all be fine. And I think that the Muppets are are more body and more kind of self-referential. But I think that ultimately the underdog story is one of perseverance. And the Muppets are nothing if not drivers. Absolutely. Definitely. And speaking of the Happiness Hotel, this, this number, not only it's, it's plays to me sort of as the, uh, the opposite of that Annie number, the like, I think I'm going to like it here sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> only it's like this kind of roach motel, essentially. And it's also our, our way into all most of the remaining Muppets. They, they all kind of hang out at this hotel. Even Beauregard drives them there, which... Speaking of, you know, random Muppet Beauregard who shows up in <laughs> who shows up very sporadically in these. I, this is probably the first of maybe 
two times he'll come up on this mega series because he's such a non-presence in a lot of these movies. But what are you what do you think? What are your thoughts on the Happiness Hotel as sort of a an addition to the Muppets music canon? It's also more of a kind of country folk style than a lot of the a lot of the other tunes in this movie or in the previous one. Yeah, there's Western piano, like the yeah. tinkling of the ivories. But the thing that I always liked about Happiness Hotel, the the physical location is that it looks like a place with corpses in the closet. Yeah. Like it looks like if you stepped into any of those rooms and opened up the closet, you would see a Muppet like mothballed and preserved. Yeah. But no, uh, the music itself, like it's uh, Joe Raposo did all the songs who did the songs for Sesame Street and some of the most iconic songs of Sesame Street. And I don't think that the songs are as strong as the Muppet movie because there's no Paul Williams, who I think is the unifying presence on those songs. But stuff like Happiness Hotel, like I dance, I, I don't dance, but I, I, my toes were doing a lot of like, listening mm-hmm. to these songs again. Like they're very toe tappy, but I wasn't standing, so I couldn't tap my toes. I could right. just wriggle them. There you go. That's, that's a step in the right direction, a pun intended. You also get the 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 debut of of Rizzo in this movie, which yes. is fun. I always yeah. remembered Rizzo being, you know, I always thought he was in Muppets Take Manhattan first, but then I I forgotten he was in this briefly. Yeah, I was when I first heard the voice, I was like, "This is his first movie! Oh my god, that's so special!" Yeah. He is like him and Gonzo are one of the the central tenants going forward. Like their friendship, it makes no sense that this will whatever in this rat would find any common ground, but they totally get in sync. And you don't really see that here. Like the, the relationship hasn't dawned yet because he's still like a repertory player. Same with Muppets Take Manhattan, where he's there for like the one joke of the rats skating on butter in the, in the frying pan, which I would never eat at that diner if that was the case. But they, they do kind of bond in later movies. And of course, Muppet Christmas Carol, where they're both the narrator, which I yeah. think is a master stroke. Yeah, no, absolutely. And people will hear my effusive praise for that movie when we get to it. But yeah, that, that's funny. They are rats in the kitchen. So it's like the original Ratatouille in that movie. I forgot about that. Yeah, but yeah. yeah totally. And then more recently, they've supplanted Rizzo. Like in Muppets Haunted Mansion, it's Gonzo and, and Pepe, which I think is... And you know what that is, right? Yeah, Steve Whitmire does Rizzo, right? Or did Rizzo. Yeah, that's that's why. And then yeah. he left, so... So they have uh, cast that character, I guess, or... Yeah, on Reels of Justice, we interviewed Kirk Thatcher, who was the director of Muppet Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, you know, so why... And I didn't ask it in an accusatory manner. I didn't say, so why is Rizzo not in this film, sir? Rizzo, where are you? I didn't say at? like that. I, I didn't say, this is Rizzo erasure or anything like that. Right. But I did ask him, so what? at any stage was Rizzo going to be Gonzo's partner as opposed to Pepe? And he said that that's not something that they ever considered because they still haven't recasted the character after Steve Wetmire left. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Again, we sort of mentioned earlier that the Muppets is in, is in a transitional period. So that's, that's another symptom of that. And I, I, you know, I, it's not really related to this movie, but I do like, I do enjoy Pepe. So that's, you know, that yeah, works. Pepe's well. great. He's yeah. great. He's one of the best parts of Muppets from space. Absolutely. He's, he's awesome. But I don't know. There's something about Gonzo and Rizzo that just kind of sets my heart on a flutter. I just love yeah. it so much. They'll get back to it, I think. I have faith that they'll get back to that. Yeah, eventually. 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 I Speaking of pairings, you know, obviously Kermit and Fozzie they are well established as best friends and sort of the, you know, that's his his go-to confidant. You can't really rely on Piggy because who knows what Piggy you're getting. And Gonzo's way more distracted with, you know, shooting himself out of cannons and and uh, hooking up <laughs> with chickens, I guess. So here we get the whole identical twins gag, which... Come on, as far as running gas go. In the movie. The it, best it, thing in the movie. It's oh, pretty so great. good. It's pretty great. Like um, the uh, the little girl saying, Look, Dad, it's a bear. And he says, No, that's a frog. Bears wear hats. I, I had that, oh, that quote so in, my, in my notes. It's so great. The picture of their father, it's like basically a Fozzie <laughs> with the, the you know, the collar and the eyes of Kermit. But I mean, this unholy monster that is just like, <laughs> so what does his mom look like? Like, what is this? 
God. Yeah, I know. It's so funny. Um, and the moment where that, they show him the picture and it's Jack Warden like shaking his hand, it kind of looks like uh, grainy footage of like the Jack Ruby getting assassinated. It's one of those things <laughs> like, oh my God, oh my God, really? Whoa, woof. It's like so, it's like the it's like an image from the the video from the ring where you're like, ah, oh, seven days. <laughs> I've seen seven it. days. Oh no. World yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's it's so funny. I I love the. So we mentioned obviously that the music is not as strong as the Muppet movie. Is there a particular song that really stands out to you? Because the Oscar nominated one is the first time it happens, which is a a really lovely number, and we get you know Miss Piggy tap dancing and all of that stuff, and we'll get into some of the some of the ways in which the technical achievements are like just outpacing the original Muppet movie in a, in a second. But is there a song that really jumps out to you other than I guess Happiness Hotel? It's a movie is yeah. the one that I was really tapping my toes to. Like I, I could still probably sing most of the dialogue. I won't because my voice is terrible, but I love that song. I love that, that Charles Grodin actually gets to, gets to be a part of it. It's, it's one of those things where it, it's the perfect way to kick off the movie. Like, I don't know that it's the strongest song, but it is a clarion call to the audience to say, we know what we're doing. You yeah. know us. This is how we get into it. And it's it's a really, it's a kind of crystalline way of starting the movie off. Well, before they even land, they're in the parachute and they're like, oh, these are just the opening credits. They're like, oh, you know, do anybody read these? Yeah, they have families. They have families. <laughs> Which I love that. I love all that stuff. You can get a Jim Henson cameo in the restaurant scene. Where That's right. Takes yeah. A picture, which uh, yeah. Speaking of cameos, cameos are, I feel like, way downplayed this time around. Do you think that might have been an, an, do you think there, there's, what do you, you know, what do you attribute that to? Because it feels like to me, maybe, maybe Jim Henson was trying to downplay that a little bit and kind of take a step away from the formula of the Muppet show. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that he probably didn't want to do the same thing again because he didn't like repeating himself. And I think that the cameos are such a such a monumental part of the Muppet movie. Like they're in basically every single scene. There's a different actor. Yeah. But they save some of the best cameos for this movie. Like Oscar the Grouch is obviously a carryover from Big Bird being in the Muppet movie. Naturally. But then you have like Peter Ustinov, who's probably my favorite host of the Muppet show ever, does a, a different accent in every single scene. And when Oscar the Grouch says, I'm just here for a very brief cameo, and Peter Ustinov says, oh, so am I. It's one of those <laughs> moments that has stuck with me ever since I saw it. And like, you know, John Cleese probably gets the, the greatest scene in the entire movie where he's just so accommodating of these, these pigs and frogs that have broken into his house. It's a very British stiff upper lip kind of thing. Like, oh, the, well, they, they must need help if they're in my house. <laughs> they're not intruders. Yeah, but, there's... Uh, there Oh, yeah. no, sorry. Go ahead. I was I was just gonna say there's there's a very British influence here. Like whether he was yes. influenced by you know British sort of mysteries or you know because we have John Cleese, we have the whole thing was shot in England. This film and Diana Rigg. Like there's a there's very much of that kind of vibe going on here. I mean, it's where it's set, obviously, but that's also yeah. very it feels it feels like it's influencing the kind of the take on the material a little bit as well. Yeah, and it's a it's a carryover from the Muppet Show, which was produced in the UK. Right. So it's kind of like they knew all these places, they knew all the locations, they they knew all kind of the the vernacular. They they've been working with Brits for five solid years. So let's do them a favor and instead of this ambiguously set Muppet Show, which could be anywhere, it could literally be anywhere. It could be in the Catskills. It could be in Iowa. It could be in Sweden. Who knows? But the Muppet movie is kind of all over the place. But then this one is a very feet planted on the ground. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I, I, I sort of alluded to a moment ago the the technical achievements. I, I think it's it's really telling and intentional that in the first one, everyone was like, you can see Kermit riding a bicycle. And here they're like, huh, really? Hold my beer. <laughs> you're, you're like 15 Muppets on bicycles during the... And not only that, they're doing handstands. Yes. Like, like in wide shots, like I know how the, the illusion of Kermit riding the bicycle was done simply because it's, it's, an, it's a feature on the DVD yeah. and it completely killed my childhood. 
But having them be in wide shots and having dialogue and, of course, the handstands, it's just, it's it's Jim Henson pushing the boundaries of puppeteering even further because that's a big part of the legacy is the innovation, the way Absolutely. that he kind of transformed the medium. Like, there's a moment where Gonzo is in a full frame sitting on the sidewalk talking. And it's mm-hmm. not like, it's not like a radio-controlled mouth. It's clear. Clearly, a hand is puppeteering him. And then later on, Kermit and Fozzie do the same thing. And I just sat there with my mouth wide open this time, kind of like, oh my God, how did they do that? I have right. no idea how they did that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, there is a lot of sequences like that where, one, it makes it feel, it makes the characters feel more alive because it's very, you know, there's no obvious like rods or strings or anything that you can tell that, that they're puppets. But it's also, it feels also like Jim Henson's like, it's like they're showing off at a certain point. It's like, mm, yeah. we're going to do something you've never seen before. Watch this, guys. And the budget is is almost double what the original film is. And I think you can tell on screen, not only because of things like that, you get full body Piggy a couple times, which is interesting, especially diving into Buzz the water. Berkeley, Esther William. Yes. The numbers are so that much must more have required scuba gear. Yeah, I, I have no idea how Frank Oz did that scene because she does talk in it and she does move around. Right. And some of it is clearly body doubles of of little people or dwarves, I guess I should say. I don't know right. what the appropriate thing is there. Right. But it, it definitely, like with Kermit on the log playing a banjo at a rainbow connection and singing at the same time, like clearly Jim Henson was partially submerged to do that, but it's a giant log, so it could be covering, like he's probably above above the surface. But Frank Oz had to do some free diving to pull that shot off. Like, I have no idea how he did it. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff like that in this movie. It's really, it's really amazing. It's really impressive that they're able to, to pull some of that stuff off. And, you know, props to, props to the studio for giving them the, the extra money to really go all out. I mean, even the puppet stuff and then also just the, not only the puppeteering, but the, the, the size of these numbers. Like, there's so many extras, so many dancers, so many different environments like I'd forgotten how many the numbers are are in this thing. Also, because I don't have a you know I, the Muppet movie had a, a soundtrack sort of reissued like within the last decade, so I have a copy of that. But the Great Muppet Caper hasn't had a like officially available. Like you go on Spotify, and it's not there. Like maybe you can find a couple songs, and that's about it. Like I'd forgotten how many numbers are in this thing. God. What was that? This was on like vinyl. I would buy a record player just to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it'd be a cool kind of throwback as well. And then when I was done with the record, then I could throw it against the wall and smash it because I've always wanted to do that. I wasn't allowed to as a kid. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It's, I think, it's a score that I think is undervalued in a large part because it's not super available, these songs. And, yeah. and I think, you know, the first time it happens is obviously, like I said, the Oscar-nominated one. But I, I like, we get another Electric Mayhem number with Nightlife. Not nearly as iconic as Can You Picture That? But, you know, I'll take the Electric but Mayhem that I can get. Still yeah. so good. Exactly. Yeah. Give me Janice any time of day. Give me Animal playing drums. Like, the only downside to those numbers is that Rolf is not playing piano. Like, there's a serious deficiency of Rolf in this movie, which is weird because he was Henson's favorite to puppeteer simply mm-hmm. because he didn't have to do a lot of work. But, and he's my favorite Muppet overall. So that, I mean, that is a disappointment. But if I'm citing that as a disappointment, if that's where I really have issues with the movie, then they're doing something right. Yeah, the only big memorable Ralph moment you get is him talking to the dogs. Bark, 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 bark. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's good to know a second language. Which is which is a fun joke, kind of yeah. uh, akin to the you know get off work, have a couple beers, take myself for a walk, and go to bed kind of thing from the first one. And it it's it's actually a pseudo referenced in Anchorman, where it's revealed that a dog's bark is actually in Spanish. Nice, there you go. Thank one you. other thing that I I love about this film is that it, it keeps that the first one establishes as as you know as you were mentioning the subversiveness of the Muppet show of these characters, you know, at this property before Disney buys it and sort of sands down some of that. It retains a lot of that, that edge that 
the fact that these Muppets are real creatures that really exist in our world. You know, Kermit shaves. They go on dates. Gonzo, Gonzo takes and no pictures. And no one them and says, that's a puppet. Yeah. Like, yeah. they look at them and they say, that's a bear, that's a dog, that's a frog. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Gon- There's even a moment just to kind of underline the fact that these movies are kid-friendly, but not kids' movies, that uh, where, where Gonzo's taking the picture of the man. And he's like, oh, you know, your wife, she's like, my wife's not feeling well. He's like, she should be at home. My wife is at home, which I think is a great moment that would sail over the head of most kids. But us as adults are like, oh, they went there. Nice. <laughs> and that, that whole club sequence is, is amazing. So good. Yeah, the fact that they, they're able to have that kind of humor and in the same movie as, uh, oh, we're going to catch them red hands, red-handed. What, are their hand, what color are their hands now? Uh, <laughs> Which they do like three times, and it never gets less amusing. No, it's great. I, all the puns. All the puns. That's kind of a... It's they're a, it's a cornerstone. Which means they're good. Yeah, yeah. It's a cornerstone of the Muppet brand, I feel. I mean, there's the whole... Yes. All the ballroom dancing scenes on the Muppet show. That's all they are. Just like they're writing puns, and they're putting them all... They're like layering them on top of each other. And, I, and I'm here yeah. for it. Yeah, they clearly love language and the possibilities of language and the way that you can turn a phrase. And I think that, like, like you said, with the, they caught red-handed, what color are their hands now? Like, that's such a, that's such a dumb kid's joke. Like, that's something that kids would say and go, <laughs> get it? But in the context of the movie, every single time they do it, it's just, it's deliriously funny. And it's like, I wonder who's going to say it this time. And then it becomes a guessing game. You even get, I, I love the little, the, some of the like just random asides. Gonzo is under the tables and he's doing a photographic essay on kneecaps, which I thought was really funny. There's a lot of little one-off things like that. <laughs> it's a particular gag or, or joke or, or, you know, kind of, you know, aside that stands out to you. Yeah, the, the Peter Falk scene where he comes on and it's not too different from his character in Wings of Desire where he's a fallen angel that then became an actor and then became in Columbo. Mm-hmm. Like, he sits down and he tells Kermit what all of his, his issues are. And then Kermit kind of takes what he's saying, processes it, and then to his face says, it's amazing, you're 100% wrong. Which is the rare kind of forceful moment for Kermit. And then Peter Falk has the greatest button to any scene in a Muppet movie where he just puts up his trench coat because you want to buy a watch? <laughs> it's oh my god the first time i saw that i i lost my mind and now every time i see it i go that's it that's the moment that's that is that's the muppets in in a nutshell like that is very much the dumb the sublime and the smart all at once it's the anarchy of it all too it's like you don't yes. it's all this stuff thrown together shouldn't work works somehow like it's 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 a microcosm of the muppets themselves like yeah you have a frog a pig a bear or whatever like none of this stuff should make sense and yet it's magic when you put them in a movie like this yeah and that you can tune on you can put on any muppet movie and understand who these characters are their relationships to each other and how the world works without them actually having to stop the movie and go okay so now you're confused, but we're going to clear it up for you. It's never confusing, which is completely that that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense on a on a purely logical level, but yet everything tracks. And that's such a, a strange kind of ineffable thing that I think that the Muppets have excelled in and still to this very day, I think works best about them is the internal logic is is internal illogic, but it makes mm-hmm. Perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense that it doesn't make sense, essentially. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I have another a much thing, better way of putting that. Another thing that I, I, I love that you sort of touched on too is Kermit at, in Jim Henson's hands, at least, pun intended, I guess, is it isn't afraid of being assertive, of being direct, of being, you know, a little less than perfect. He's not afraid of, of sort of having a, a sassy sense of humor or coming back with a quip of his own. And, and that's something that the Muppet show really leaned into a lot. And it's, it's cool when you have those moments here where you, 
you know that that he he kind of he it kind of sneaks through a little bit, and I think the Peter Fox scene is probably the standout example of that here. Yeah, he like Piggy is capable of temper tantrums. Like on the Muppet Show, he would frequently express not just disil- disillusionment with a scooter and the way that he runs things, but occasionally he will just have enough. Like he's tired of all the bullshit that the world is throwing at him. And he just completely melts down. And while we don't get that side of him here, I think it's probably like the closest that the early movies get to that part. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. See, there's, I love the, the, the gag where Piggy calls Nikki, Charles Grodin's character out for being dubbed in her fantasy sequence. Those kinds of things. Again, we talk about breaking the, self, the fourth wall and that sort of self-aware humor of like, hey, we're in a movie that's going to go out its way to do that. And I love getting, you know, the iconic image of Piggy on the motorcycle, bending the bars and all that stuff. So good, good yeah. stuff. Is there Everything with Piggy is gold in this movie. Like the second she shows up and tells Diana or asks Diana Rigg, can I show you my portfolio? She says no. So that means Piggy has to go into that room and show her herself. It's right. one of those things where it's just every single second she's on screen, I am happy. I feel I, like I love that character so much. I feel like Loki, in a way, Piggy is kind of the main character of this movie. Like I think there's an argument oh, to be made. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it starts out with the, uh, you know, Kermit Fozzie Gonzo. The first one is clearly from Kermit's perspective. He's the main character. And then here it it, you know, Piggy isn't introduced to us with the main tri- a trio. But it, it feels like it's her journey. It's her arc. She's really much more tied to everything that's going on with Lady Holiday, with Nikki, with Kermit Absolutely. than any like of the other she's characters. their entry point into that yeah. story. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's an, another interesting idea, too. Like, I feel I feel like in to a certain regard, you know, the the protagonist of these Muppet movies, maybe in Jim Henson's hands would have shifted, passed around a lot more than just being, you know, Strictly now, Kermit and and company is sort of the the go to lead. Like even now, I guess we are seeing with Muppets Haunted Mansion. That's a Gonzo story. I don't know. Part of that is is obviously I think probably because Matt Vogel is relatively new to the voice of Kermit and having you know the more sta- you know the more established Muppet performers in the lead role, sort of doing that. I think maybe that might be some of the rationale there, but. Later on, Muppets from Space is a Gonzo movie. So, you know, I like I like when they when they pass the the focus around a little bit because it 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 plays to the strength of how you know how many how many Muppet characters are there in the Muppets? Insane amount of Muppet characters. And so when we kind of pass that that you know the spotlight around a little bit, I think it it makes for a richer experience for the viewer. Yeah, it's such an expansive universe that you could really you could make. You could make a million movies and have each one be led by a different Muppet and you wouldn't run out of movies or Muppets for a while. Right. Like it's, it speaks to the, the, the inherent quality of that universe and the, the world that they build and the strength of character that I think it's, it's interesting to kind of peer into the multiverse and see that timeline where Henson survived and kept making Muppet movies. And what would that entail? What would they look like? What would they feel like? It's one of the the fascinating questions left by his legacy. But I think that he would have he would have made more movies like the Great Muppet Caper, probably more than the Muppet Movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I feel like we would have gotten we certainly would have gotten a sci-fi Muppet movie. I, I'm not Muppets from Space is not a sci-fi Muppet movie, even though it, it kind of thinks it is. More akin to like a Pigs in Space style film. I feel like that probably would have happened eventually. But after this, we did get the Dark Crystal. We did, did get Labyrinth from Jim Henson. And I, I also love the fact that Frank Oz stepped up to the, direct the next film in the Muppet yeah, franchise. Yeah, that I, kicked off an entire career for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Is there anything about the great Muppet caper that we haven't touched on, you know, and its importance to the franchise that uh, you wanted to make sure we mentioned before we sort of keep moving. I think, I think that covers everything that I needed to say. I think that, I think we, we covered all the bases. Cool. Cool. It's yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a step up production wise for, for the Muppet films. And I think that that's, 
Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thought experiment because it feels like a both a a side like both a a step away from the Muppet movie and also a progression at the same time, which is an interesting sort of juxtaposition. So one thing I wanted to ask you: it's an acceleration. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. But in that in that in that vein, does the does the Muppets Take Manhattan really fit in with that? Because that what genre I guess is that tackling Broadway? I guess. Yeah, the the weird thing about Muppets Take Manhattan, the thing that I like most about it is that it's the only Muppet movie that seems to take place in the real world. Like, it's gritty and grimy, and New York looks up New York. Nothing really exaggerated about it. The Muppets spend most of their time being disenfranchised, which makes perfect sense because actors that look like the Muppets in the real world would not find it that easy to get along with everybody. Mm-hmm. To, pursue their dreams so i think that that's like that's the rare movie that doesn't feel like the it doesn't feel like a movie being made by the muppets it feels like a regular new york city trying to find my dream movie with muppets that happen to be in it right i think i mean there are parts of this movie that feel to me like a big lavish hollywood musical with muppets in it like if that if that makes sense it feels to me yeah, that the first one is a Muppet musical, and this one is a musical with Muppets because of, yes, this I, is very much a '30s musical. Yes, it's a yeah, review, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder if because the Great Muppet Caper made so much less at the box office than the Muppet Movie, I wonder if that spooked them into okay, no, they're they're just trying to put together a show, you know, kind of. <laughs> similar to the Muppet Show, the Muppet movie, kind of just like they're aspiring performers on the outs. And then they just, they kind of took it in that direction. I, I'm, I would not be surprised. It is very much in their self-reflexive wheelhouse to do something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wanted to ask you, Ryan, what is, in your estimation, what is the legacy of the Muppet movie franchise? What does this contribute to cinema? I guess, you know, the the big screen Muppet stuff, not necessarily everything, because that's that's a much bigger question. I think that they they push the the envelope in terms of what family entertainment is supposed to be. Like I don't necessarily think that the Muppets are family characters. I think that because they're puppets, they happen to appeal to children, even if a lot of the stuff that they do goes over their head. So I think that in terms of just the technical aspect, this pushes puppeteering forward. In terms of making this kind of normalized and making this not stigmatized, I think that, that that plays a big role in it. And I think that the Muppets demonstrate a self-awareness that I don't think, and both a an earnestness and a sweetness and a self-referential stuff, which is very hard to do mm. and has been tried and failed by many movies since, but I think that the Muppet movies are proof that it can work, that you can do all that stuff, still hit all the bait, still bring in the audience. And I think that that is, that's a testament to Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Jerry Jewell and Dave Goals and, and the entire crew and Richard Hunt and just everybody there. Like, they they didn't know it at the time, but they were making legends. And the Muppets have survived all this time because of that. Yeah, it's it's the best kind of, air quote, family entertainment in that it's not really made for, for kids. It's made, it's accessible to kids, but it's really made for people in general. Yeah. And, and I like think kids don't get puns. Exactly. They don't understand what that exactly. Is. No, th- there's a reason they call those dad jokes, you know, and it's it's like some, you know, there's not that many examples of that kind of entertainment, especially now when we're, you know, we're living in the world of minions and things like that, where everything is very straightforward and, you know, a fart joke or whatever. And it's it's not there's there aren't that many levels to a lot you can of get pandering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I have, I'm, I'm, I have a five-year-old, I have a 10-month-old, and I'm very like, mm, no, that seems dumb. We're not watching that. We're, we're going gonna to watch this dumb thing. Like, I'm trying to, like, now at that age that my daughter is five and a half or so, like, I'm like, is she ready for this? Should I put this on? Like, start easing her into some of the 80s entertainment that I grew up with when 
they weren't afraid to go a little dark. They weren't afraid to go a little, you know, a little deeper than just straight, you know, kids movies are. And I think the best family entertainment, I put them, definitely include the Muppets in there. Pixar, most of the Pixar movies is in there. Like, that's the stuff that really stands the test of time that you watch as a child and you don't feel embarrassed when you go back and watch it as an adult. You're like, yeah, no, this holds up. Thank goodness. Oh, there's no shame. There's no shame whatsoever to be yeah. an adult and be into the Muppets. Absolutely. It's totally there shouldn't be. I, that's, yeah, I, I 100% agree. And, and it's, but you can enjoy it the same, if not more, when you, when you go back and watch it. And there's been a lot of things oh, that I've gone, I've gone back to watch. I was really, I was really big into the Power Rangers back in the day. I've went, I've seen the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie since then. I was like, oof. I mean, I, I love this because I grew up with it, but geez, it sucks. <laughs> like, don't go back to Turbo. Oh, I haven't. I'm like, even bad. at the time, oh, that, was, man. that was on the tail end of my interest in Power Rangers. I was like, I don't know. I'm, there's a reason yeah. I didn't see this in theaters. I saw it in... That okay. one was after my time, but when I finally saw it, I think it was streaming on some service, maybe Hulu. And I watched like five minutes of this and I'm like, this is what I liked as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I guess I was, I guess the Muppets were like an outlier because clearly I had terrible taste. <laughs> well, thank goodness for the Muppets then. So, yes. so you meant, you mentioned early on that this is your favorite Muppet movie. Does that, can I then assume that in your ranking that this is number one? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, what would they make uh, that assumption? What is the the rest of your ranking then while we're on the topic? Okay, let's let's think. So, Great Muppet Caper. I'm going to count these out on my fingers, make sure, because you said eight, right? There are eight. Yep. Okay. So, Great Muppet Caper, Muppet Movie, Muppets Take Manhattan, Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppets Most Wanted, Muppets from Space, Muppet Treasure Island, The Muppets. There you go. All eight. I'm in, I'm intrigued by the Muppets in last place. What what's what is your what is your beef with the 2011 Muppets? Well, here's the thing. Like the last the last item on my Muppet checklist is still head and shoulders above most movies. Right. It okay. just so happens that I mean, like Muppets from Space is deeply flawed. But it's also a movie that my brother was obsessed with when he was a little kid. So I've seen it 20, 30 times. Mm. And it's kind of baked into my my consciousness. So, and, and plus it has all the Muppets living together in the same house. I love my that. Favorite, I'm so glad. That's, that's going to be my favorite thing of, in any Muppet yes, movie ever. Yes. That idea. 100%. That's going to be the top of my notes when I get to that episode because <laughs> that just blew my mind when I saw, like, oh, they're all together. Like, where, give me a, like, what is the reality show yeah. of that house? Like, like that's they like, didn't me, do this until now? They've been making Muppets movies for other, 15 like, years and they on? waited? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I love that. I love that so much. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. That, and the thing is, if you love these characters, even the less great movies featuring them, are they still have these characters in them? So you'll just, you know, if you're if you're bought into the Muppets brand, you'll watch even the lesser ones and be like, ah, I just want to hang out with Kermit and company for a bit. Yeah. It's you know, there's a it, kernel it, of quality at the at the center of all these movies. Yeah, always even the and worst then, ones. And, and it comes from all the people you just mentioned, Jim Henson, Frank Oz, etc. Yeah, no, that's that. I under I can understand. I I have complicated feelings about the 2011 Muppets. I haven't watched it in a long time, so it's going to be interesting when I watch it for for this podcast because I kind of go back and forth on how I feel about that. There are things that I really enjoy, and there are things that I'm like, why is it so much about the people? It's the Muppet movie. Like, why am why is it Jason Segel and Amy Adams like more so than Kermit and Piggy? So I have like. Issues like that, that I feel like the balance there is off. And the yeah, Muppet-human ratio is is very critical to any of these films, I think. Yes. Yes, there must be more felt than flesh. Yes. Perfect. I love it. Exactly. So, Ryan, this was a blast. I'm so glad, you know, I've been following you on social media for a while. So I see all your posts about every all the cool stuff you're, you've got going on. So I'm glad we were able to make this happen. So thank you for coming on. Let people know where they can find you on social media. So Twitter, I'm Coolness Pod Ryan, and I think it's called One Track Mind Pod. 
I haven't really posted anything there yet, but that'll change as time goes on. And then on Instagram, I'm at The Coolness Chronicles and One Track Mind with a, no, a numeral one. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ryan. This was a blast. We'll definitely get you back on here at some point. I would absolutely love to. Big thanks to Ryan Luis Rodriguez of The Coolness Chronicles for coming on to discuss 1981's The Great Muppet Caper. If you like this show, give me a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods. We're having a lot of fun interacting with people on there. Now, I want to know, where do you rank The Great Muppet Caper? A lot of people consider this perhaps the finest Muppet movie. Jim Henson directed it himself. So what is your take? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table. The same handle on Instagram and via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back next episode for the final uh, in the original Muppet trilogy. Uh, that is the ones prior to Jim Henson's unfortunate passing in 1990. 1984 is the Muppets Take Manhattan. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll see you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED. <laughs> <laughs>